listening to a Larry Sanders show podcast. Don't you know that you're all a part of the show? So the better you are, the better Larry is. But Larry's not here. So the pressure's off. I hope you'll enjoy this Larry Sanders recap podcast. Watch along in conversation show. Hello, and welcome to It's the Larry Sanders Show's show. I'm here with my generic co-host, Max. And I'm here with my name brand co-host, Jason. I knew you would do name brand. I called it in my head to myself. We will be your guides each week as we break down a new episode of The Larry Sanders Show. This week, we're discussing A Brush with the Elbow of Greatness, which aired on October 31st, 1992, a spooky Halloween episode. It was directed by Ken Quapis and written by Peter Tolan and Maya Forbes. In this episode, Larry is caught on camera knocking over a civilian and has to deal with the consequences. Hank is angling to become the next spokesperson for a restaurant chain, and Jerry reveals his Tony Danza impression. Truly the most important part of the episode. All right, well, Jason, this is a special episode for us because it's the last episode of the podcast that we're recording for season one, and we've got a lot of really excited things planned for the future. Uh, we actually just received a message about some really exciting opportunities for us that we can't share on air yet, but we will once we're allowed to be public about it. So everyone rest assured, big things are happening for It's the Larry Sanders Show's show. It's also a big episode because we have our first returning guest. Yes, last week we had an incredible conversation with someone who has extensive knowledge of the show because he lived the show for several years. And he has been sufficiently patient with us and sufficiently generous with his time. For us to schedule him again this week, we have a special back-to-back appearance from executive producer and showrunner Peter Tolan. You know what? Why don't we take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Mr. Peter Tolan. I agree. Let's take a quick break. Welcome back to It's the Larry Sanders Show's show. Uh, we're here with our guest, Mr. Peter Tolan. Uh, we're very excited we could bring you back for a, a second week. Um, Max, do you want to ask the first question? I think last time we broke some ground, actually, by you told when you told us the story about Fred Barron's departure from the Larry Sanders Show and how you stepped into the producing role, which I think hasn't been documented very well. Um, but another story that I think hasn't really been fully told is about how Dennis Klein, who wrote the first episode and is credited as a co-creator, he seems to have left the show really early and maybe under some contentious circumstances. Can you help us understand what happened there? It's interesting about Dennis Klein. I didn't know Dennis and certainly didn't know him through the entire run of Larry Sanders. I moved to Montecito some years ago up near Santa Barbara. And it just so happened that Dennis Klein was my neighbor up there. So all those years later, we got to sort of, you know, we would have had the chance to sort of talk. But for some reason, he was always talking to my ex-wife more than more than me. So I never really felt like I connected with him. And my take on it is anybody, and I'm not going to name people, but a lot of people who have worked with Gary in the past, it doesn't end well. There's something that happens. And 
I can't really speak to what that is, but I do see the pattern where anybody who's worked with Gary for any length of time, it, there's just some, something that happens. And I, I could get into the psychology of all this and it, it would sound very basic and I really don't want to do that. But there are very few people that have somehow dodged the bullet of not ending up on Gary's bad side. And, and I would say in some cases, that bad side was not warranted. It just happened. You know, it just, something happened where a person did something to disappoint Gary, and that was it. Like the door closed on that person. And there were people who worked on Larry Sanders or who were brought in to work on it, and they would do the one thing, and they never knew what happened, but Gary just suddenly, it, he just was suddenly closed off to them, didn't trust them didn't believe in them, didn't have faith in their talent, and ultimately didn't think they were going to make his job easier. And I think that was probably the, the greatest sin. And I'm not saying he didn't work hard. He worked very hard. But I think he expected some level of ability um, from, the, from the people that he was working with. And if you didn't deliver it, that was sort of it. I think really... Judd and I, in terms of writers, people he worked with as writers, are the, and I'm probably missing somebody, but Judd and I are probably the only two people who survived to the end, who never stepped on the imaginary landmine. So I don't know why that was, but Dennis, I can see Dennis, knowing Dennis and knowing Gary, I can see that not being a match made in heaven. You know, there's there's too much Jewish energy in that in that room. There's too much neurotic energy that might not be the greatest thing in the world. So I don't know the specifics of it, but I'm sure Gary closed the door on Dennis. And I'm sure if you asked Dennis, he wouldn't even know why. So was there a connection between how you worked on Carol and Company prior to Larry Sanders and... Carol Burnett appearing in the first season as a guest? I moved to California to work on Murphy Brown. And I was offered the job and said, yes, I'm, I'm moving to California. And then the person who created that show said, I'm having a contract dispute with Warner Brothers, so I can't hire you until that's resolved. Can you hang on? I go, yes, yes, yes. And you just dragged on and on and on. And I had to take another job, and that was Carol and Company. So when we did... When we were doing Sanders at the very beginning, you will notice that Carol's in one of the really early episodes, yep, right? the Spiders episode. That was like a turning point. And I, I have, I've seen Carol, I just saw her a month ago. I mean, I've seen her my entire time in California. We were actually neighbors in Montecito. But at the beginning of Sanders, when we would try to cast it, we would say to people, oh, you please come on and, and do the show. It's about a talk show. And they would say, well, okay, who do I play? And we'd say, well, you play yourself. Click. You know, they're just not really interested in that. I don't think people could sort of see what that was going to be. And so we would write the script. You know, we'd write a script, and it would be for William Shatner, and we'd send it out. 
and we'd wait five days and the, the guy would say, is he playing himself? And we'd go, yeah. And they go, yeah, he's not going to do it. Take the script back, do a search and replace, put in the next person's name, send it out again. And it was harrowing, you know, because we'd have to do that six times to try and cast any of the parts. So we were sort of in a bad place. And Gary and I were thinking, who can, who can we get? And we both had a connection to Carol, so we called her and said, please, would you come on? We really need you, um, and you're going you're gonna to be yourself, going to be yourself. And she had no, no problem with that. And she came on, and she, um, she was great, totally game. When the town heard that she did it, that's what opened the floodgates. So that then people went, well, God, if somebody like Carol is doing it, then I should be doing it. From that point on, really, we did not have any trouble. It went to a whole different level, of course, once the show actually aired and it was getting a lot of critical acclaim. Then everybody wanted to be on it, you know, including the people who say to Gary, like in the supermarket, I want to be on your show. And then you call them and they say, what do you mean? I'm not going to be on your show. You know, those people, forgetting those people because those people always existed. People just clamored to be on the show. And when Carol did it, there, she's, she does a, a Tarzan sketch in the show and it gets canceled. For some reason, Gary, Larry cancels, cancels it. And she's not happy with that. And she has this conversation, which is really tells you what that show is in a nutshell, because the conversation takes place during a commercial break for the Larry Sanders show. So they're sitting there and the music starts up and they just ignore each other. You know, they're just, it's the most awkward thing in the world. After having this, you know, jovial, fun conversation, it just goes to complete silence and awkwardness. And she, I think he finally, you know, feeling the awkwardness says, hey, I'm really sorry about the sketch. You'll have to come back. She goes, yeah, that would be great. You know, they sort of lapse into that. And she says, you know, but if I do come back and we do, and we do the sketch, you might want to talk to your wardrobe people um, about your loincloth. And he says, why? And she just fixes a look on him and says, I saw your balls. Now, when I read this in the script, I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't think she's going to do that. I don't think, and I don't think America's ready to hear Carol Burnett say, I saw your, saw Gary Shandling's balls. And she did it. I mean, she just never, never, never a question, and she killed it. She absolutely killed it. And we were done shooting. And I said to her, you know, Carol, I was really actually kind of concerned that you'd have a problem with that I saw your balls line. And she said, oh, honey. She called everybody honey, because then you don't have to remember everybody's name. She said, oh, honey. I would never do that on my show because my audience wouldn't, you know, wouldn't accept that. But when I'm in your sandbox, I come to play. <laughs> and I was like, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life in show business. When I'm in your sandbox, I come to play. Yeah, that's great. I was recently watching a PBS American Masters interview with her where she explained that was her first time cursing on air. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Oh, my God. I feel terrible now. It's great. 
I feel terrible. No, that that scene's incredible. I think about it all the time when I think about the show. It's as you said, it's a great summation of what the show is getting at. I want to tell you a story that has has nothing to do with a question you're going to ask me, but hopefully somebody will back me up on this, or somebody already has. Has anybody mentioned anything about Gene Siskel to you? Not yet. No. Okay. If you watch the show, you know there's some junk on Larry's desk on the set, right? And one of the things is a coffee cup that probably has some logo for the Larry Sanders show. After we were done shooting something, it was later at night. I was the only person on that set, and I was writing something, or I was actually behind the bleachers, and I had a script up, and I was changing a line or doing something. And Gene Siskel... Rest, may he rest in peace, came onto the set, looked around, and stole the mug off the desk. That's all I'm going to say. I watched him do it. <laughs> wow, this is an exclusive. Yeah, you're the only witness. This could be one of those things where somebody goes, I was the only witness, and it turns out, you know, it's, it's a Rashomon thing. We were all there, you know. <laughs> I feel bad, you know, because he's dead, but, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> the guest stars are such a big part of, you know, what you pointed out as the, that great tension in the show. Um, and we, we actually, we interviewed Ken Quapis, and he told us pretty much the same story as you about how, you know, you would have to rewrite the scripts to put in the new celebrity guest. Were there any examples of times where the script had to be like radically changed because of the guest versus just kind of a find and replace? No, we were smart enough, thank God, to not to be writing stuff in the, you know, in the vain hope of getting the actual person that the thing was about. That would have been foolish, you know, so we never got quite that far. Um, if, if we did that, it would have been in later seasons when we said, we have an idea for a show. I, I think maybe the Sharon Stone episode that I wrote with Gary or something. We talked to Sharon about it first before we wrote it. And she was like, yeah, I'd love to do that. So, and thank God she actually did it. And I think there were a couple of those. Not all things that I wrote, but even some other ones. Maybe there's an Ellen DeGeneres episode and I may be remembering or misremembering. In those cases we would talk to them beforehand and say, hey, we'd love you to be on the show and here's what we're thinking. And that was a different thing. We didn't do it blindly. <laughs> that would have been suicide. So we have to ask if you're willing to share some stories about Rip Torn that are uh, in good taste given, given his passing. Well, look, they're true, okay? They're true. Everybody on the Larry Sanders show has a Rip story. Everybody. Like I just did a show and my costume person turned out to be the costume person on Larry Sanders. We hadn't seen each other in 25 years. And she said, oh, Rip. You know, the first thing she said to me, oh, Rip, and told me some story about him taking off in his car and God knows what. Um, I, don't think, I don't think I'm saying anything out of school when I say that Rip was, um, had, had a, a relationship with alcohol. Um, and that sometimes that relationship spilled over to the working hours. This is a, just a story about how, how you, you know, how you can sometimes screw yourself in show business. So 
he Rip would was a bully, and and he he never picked on Gary. Obviously, he knew you know which hand was feeding him, but anybody else was fair game. I'm talking about crew members, crew members and other actors and whatever. He'd just pick on some. He'd choose a person every week or whatever, and just or had his a bee in his bonnet about somebody and just you know would glare at them and make remarks and be be a dick. And I think by the end of the, I think it was like the end of the third season. It's either the second or third season. I, I really w- had sort of had enough of it. And I'm not a confrontational person. I'm not really good with confrontation. But I was feeling um, this welling up <laughs> in me that something something was going to get said, you know. And we had a, we had a table read for a script, and then the director and I and Gary went back to Gary's office and talked through it and said, well, we're maybe going to, you know, maybe we should cut this. Uh, we're going to move this and maybe give this note and give this note and so forth. And the director said to me, would you, would you come with me to give these notes to the actors at the table? And I said, I don't think I should because I knew I knew I was right on the edge. So we go and we, we start to give the notes. And the first note really cuts Wally's part for the week in half. And he just sort of says, okay, all right, got it, right. He makes the cuts and so forth. And it also cuts one of Rip's lines. And Rip says, well, I guess I shouldn't have come in this week. I guess I should have taken a vacation to Tahiti. <laughs> and I said, Rip, I just cut Wally's part in half and you lost one line and what the fuck is I mean I just blew up I blew up I'm screaming at him you fucking cocksucker what the fuck is wrong with you I am sick of you now we're both and we're on either sides of this table and we're both on our feet he's fuck you fuck you and I'm like no fuck you fuck you I said I'm fucking sick of you get the fuck off the stage I'm sick of looking at you well this goes on for I'm going to say 40 seconds this is 40 seconds of, of two guys across a table, like, yelling at each other. And, and I'm telling him to get off the fucking stage. And he's not going. So I see that. And at a certain point, I just go, all right, let's just continue with the notes. So we sit down. And I don't look at him. He's over there. And I don't look at him. And we're talking through the notes and everything. But I see somebody. It's either Penny. I think it was Penny or Janine or somebody on the other side and they look at me and they run a finger down from their eye slowly to indicate to me that Rip, that I have made Rip cry. I still don't look at him, but we've, so we, now we finished the notes and he pushes away from the table and says, well, I guess I'll call my agent and stomps off the stage. And this is, takes him a while to get off the stage. The stages are big, you know. Stomp, 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 stomp. Door opens. Door closes. As soon as it closes, the entire cast just breaks out in applause. Because they've been waiting for two seasons for this to happen. For somebody to tell him off. So I'm upset because I'm a, some, I consider myself to be a semi-professional person. <laughs> And I, I don't really lose my cool that much. And I feel bad about it, but he deserved it. And the next day, I said to him, listen, sorry I lost my temper, but you 
have to, you've got to change the way you relate to people around here. And you don't show anybody respect, so I am not going to show you the respect of watching you work for the last episode or whatever. We, we were almost done for the last episode. And that's the last thing I said to him. But it bugged me. It really bugged me that this had gotten away from me and that I had done this. And I remember being at the, uh, the Ace Awards, the Cable Ace Awards, which is the Edsel of awards now. Nobody, you know, it's no, I actually, I threw them all away except for two. I like save, save two of them. It's like a historical artifact. And um, I'm sitting at the, at the Cable Ace Awards, which is, uh, you know, they give out 800 awards in like 35 minutes, you know, just shoveling them out, the, you know, shoveling them into a great fire to keep the train of the Cable Ace Awards going. And it, I'm sitting there the whole time and I'm so bugged and I can't stop thinking about it. And I come up with the story for what became Arthur After Hours, an episode in the next season called Arthur After Hours, where Artie and Larry have a fight, and Artie spends the whole night in the studio and does all this stuff. Sings and does Shakespeare and does all this stuff, makes friends with a cleaning person, and they break apart and, you know, whatever. And it was a tour de force. And I saw Rip at the Emmys, I think. And I said to him, and we had, you know, the typical um, alcoholics reunion where, you know, there's a lot of hugging, you know, I love you, my brother. You know, there's a lot of that going on after this big fight. And I said, and in that moment, I said to him, I've got a show for you next season. And that's all I said. So I don't know if he ever knew what Arthur After Orvis was, was really about. But it was about us. He, there are lines in it about, you know, they both work on the show. One, you know, cleans up during the day. One cleans up at night. The janitor, well, that's us. That's me and him. I'm the one cleaning up at night, and he's the one during the day, you know. And I don't think he ever knew that. And so he put that show up for the Emmy. And the first Emmy Award that was won by the Larry Sanders show was for Rip Torn in that episode. So somehow, even though I was in the right, I knew I'd get fucked by it. And showbiz, once again, is not fair, okay? He wins the Emmy, and I'm just sitting out there with my dick in my hand. So there you go. You really have to just know Rip and have spent time with him. He was, you know, he was a, the thing that it would be easy to dismiss him if you just said, he's an angry, fucking crazy guy. Because, no, he would say to me, you know, the CIA is following me. Are you aware of that? You know, that kind of thing. You'd get that with it. Um, but he obviously was a, a really good actor. And so there was that. And he was, a, at heart, deep down, like a good guy. Like, he, we would talk about gardening, you know? Well, you tell, I've got my, uh, got my tomatoes in, they're coming. You know, just like... He, he had that other side, not, and he hunted, you know, so there was a little bit of the outdoorsman thing, but he was a gardener, you know, and he really enjoyed that, and we connected on that weird level, but there was also the CIA and this crazy shit. <laughs> he was a scary guy. I actually went to a, a friend of mine, married his son, and ma the marriage didn't last, but I went to the wedding at, the, like, the Pierre in New York, you know, and so I got to see Rip like in a tux or something, like not, and in a tux, but not at the Emmys, like in the real world, you know, so it's like really weird. Um, 
that was the strangest part. That, that, that was the strangest, sort of being with him as another man and not in a work situation. He, he was, uh, believe me, many people would, would tell you this, he, he, could, he was a scary dude. You know, he was a scary dude. I think a lot of Rip is summed up in his arrest in Connecticut late in life when he, when he broke into a, a local bank. Uh, you know, and in these towns in Connecticut, you know, they make all the local businesses look like, you know, they fit in architecturally. So they make them look like some salt box home or, you know, the Cape Cod kind of style home. But he, he broke into a bank thinking it was his house. And the only way that he actually got off was that he was able to convince them that he thought he was home because he took his boots off. They figured that nobody who's going to rob a bank would take their shoes off and sort of curl up on a sofa. So, I mean, he let's just say unpredictable. Unpredictable and dangerous. I mean, look, maybe he wanted to rob the bank. I don't know. There's some part of me that thinks Rip would be fully capable to rob a bank or do anything illegal that he would want to do. What caused you to leave the show and stop being the executive producer? Well, I was, it was just, you know, my natural, I guess, progression through my, through television and my uh, career that I had uh, initially been working in broadcast television and doing the Carol show and then doing Murphy Brown. And then in my, in, when those, when they're off season, I would go do something else. And then I, so I had done sessions on HBO, which is how I met Fred Barron. And then the next year I did Larry Sanders. And then the next year I did Larry Sanders. And I think, I think one of those years I was there full time. I can't remember. But, you know, at a certain point, people are like, oh, you, you've got to start creating your own shows. Uh, you've got to get like an overall deal at uh, one of the studios and start creating a show. That's the next step. So that's what I did. And I actually got lucky because where I went was Disney and I started to create television shows for them. Um, you know, most of them you've never heard of. They never got on. Every now and then something would go on for like uh, 10 episodes or 12 episodes. But luckily, um, the, and this doesn't really happen, but I, when I got that offer, you know, because I was no longer on the show, when they said, we need, really need you to write episodes, I had to go to my boss at Disney and say, look, this is going to seem highly, un <laughs> highly irregular since you're paying me all this money to just work exclusively for you but they really need me to write these episodes on Larry Sanders. Is there any possible way you could allow that? And as it turned out, my boss was um, a huge fan of the show and really liked my episodes. In fact, that's probably one of the reasons I actually got my overall deal was they were watching my Sanders episodes. So um, he said, yeah, um, yes, go ahead and do it. But, you know, keep it, don't... Don't be taking out an ad in Variety saying, thanks, Disney, for letting me do this. You know, don't, don't draw any attention to it, you know. Hopefully nobody will notice, which they didn't. Um, so that was a fluke that I was able to continue with the show. But it was really, leaving the show was just, just purely to follow the next, the next step of my career. And truthfully, I, I tend to get bored easily. So 
after I've done two or three seasons of something, I'm just like, all right, what next? What was your relationship with Gary after the show? We kept seeing each other. Initially, we were talking about other projects. We actually sold another project. Not many people know this. We sold a project to HBO. I, I had a working title on it that was Life Everlast Inc., which was about heaven. I thought the next progression for Gary would be to play God as like this tremendously neurotic God who just is always going, what did I do? Like, what did I do by creating humanity, you know? And I kept saying to Gary, we should do this, we should do this. And, and I said, oh, they've got security cameras of the entire earth. There's one room that's like the control thing and it's just every, every corner of the earth and a security camera and you're seeing the falls in Venezuela and you're seeing Red Square and a tree frog someplace in the Amazon. So, and it was just all about this moral problem, the moral problem of humanity and, you know, and, and what, what's going to happen to humanity. And I found myself at HBO one day and I said, look, I, I shouldn't tell you this because we haven't finished it, but Gary and I are talking about the show. And they said, we'll, uh, we'll buy it. We'll buy it. I said, great, I'll tell Gary. He just, he just couldn't do it. He just wasn't interested in having done the show for six seasons. He was just tired. And he couldn't imagine going back and, and doing another show. So HBA would call me every three weeks or something and go, where's the script? What's happening? And I finally had to say, yeah, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So it was sold. It just didn't happen. And then, you know, soon after that, I don't remember how long, Gary had asked me several times after, uh, during Sanders, maybe the last year or the fifth season or whatever, that he had written a, uh, a screenplay uh, that was what, what planet are you from and would I, and would I rewrite it? And I, I demurred. Um, I, I don't know why. I, maybe I didn't take to it. I maybe thought it was goofy or something, but I didn't take to it. But when the show ended, I felt like I owed him. You know, I felt like I had gotten so much out of the Sanders show that I should, I should do this for him. So I did it. I did another draft of What Planet Are You From? I really just used various pieces of several scripts of the first two acts, and then I wrote a new third act. So I was very surprised to hear that Mike Nichols was going to be directing it. And, you know, and that started that whole thing, and I invite you to read... Um, the Mike Nichols book to hear, you know, to sort of get a sense of exactly how, how poorly that went. And then I kept, I kept seeing him. He was doing Town and Country, that movie that went on forever and ever and ever. Um, and I would just hang with him on set. He would be shooting in Pasadena or something. And I'd be like, hey, I'll come over and hang with you and whatever. And at a certain point, it just turned into like regular lunches or dinner or something like that. So, and that, and that's really the way it went really up until about three weeks before he passed away. I, I wish we could have seen that show uh, that didn't end up I, getting I made. Too. I think it would have been great. I remember I said, we should just do you know anything, that all the shit that God has to deal with. And you know I remember there was one thing I was pitching to him where there's like his, his archangel or whatever is coming in and going, well... Um, you remember you have that uh, 1115, and he goes, oh, my God, not again, not again. And he goes, well, it is, it has been five years, you know. He, he uh, 
So the, he says, all right, all right, fine, fine, I'll do it, send him in. It's Hitler. And Hitler says, look, I think it's been enough time. I, I, think, I think I've been in hell long enough. And Gary's just like, Adolf, listen, if it was up to me, I mean, I can be lenient, but you know, it's, you're talking about six million Jews or whatever the hell he says. And he says, I'm sorry, you gotta, no, uh, you can't, you gotta go, you gotta go back. And you follow Hitler and these other archangels, you know, take Hitler and they take him down this long hallway and there's an elevator at the end. They get in the elevator and they just go down and down and down. It's this long thing with Muzak, you know, playing probably the Carpenters or something, right? And it just goes down and down and down. And then the doors open and the archangels just sort of motion for Hitler to go out the door and he walks into like what looks like a Brooklyn living room in like 1948 or something like that. And this big Yiddish mama comes out and she goes, "Ah, oh, Adolf, where were you? We were so worried. Oh, and all these other Yiddish mamas come in and they just surround him and they're offering food and everything. That's Hitler's hell, you know, just to be with all these Jewish mothers. Like, just, are you okay? You look, you don't look well. What happened? Tell us everything. Oh, you won't believe what happened while you were gone. You know, this kind of thing. Oh, it's going to be crazy. No wonder we didn't do it. Wow, I would have loved to see Gary in that role. Um, thank you so much. I think this is all the time we have, and we'll be right back. Well, thank you so much, um for meeting with us i'm sorry we yeah, i'm sorry yeah, we couldn't yeah. do it at your office that's the thing I'm, I'm trying to tell you guys is that you know uh, my office it keeps expanding because business is business you know but yeah so they're they're adding a new wing it's all this construction it's crazy i you know i'm like hey, hey guys can you finish it finish it today you know i got clients coming i got people coming in important people like you guys so uh so do you want to get down to it yeah why not hey let's get cracking you know that's what uh that's what uh that's what the old man always said you know, I'm a lucrative type of guy, really smart, really intelligent. And, you know, I'm someone when there's talent coming, there's talent a mile away. I see it and I recognize it. And I have I have a lot of money that I want to spread out and give to people, you know. And I see you guys and, you know, the thing that you're trying to, put together here this cartoon i'm very excited for it and i think you know cartoons are kind of the future of media so i'm very cartoon what? i'm i'm sorry i'm yeah i'm sorry to interrupt um yeah it, it we this is actually this is a podcast right yeah that's what i mean you know uh yeah right the uh hold on one second the yeah the, no, yeah, of course, yeah, the the program made available in digital format for download over the internet. Yeah, that's what I meant. Cartoon, same thing, you know, you say cartoon, I say this, you know, you say tomato, tomato, you know. Anyways, it's very, uh -huh. I, I'm very excited uh, to work with you guys. Yeah, I mean, it was, we were really excited when we saw your email. Um, mm -hmm. We, we you know, we really want to take this podcast to the next level. And of we, course, it, yeah. we really appreciated when you talked in your email about how, 
you've looked at our show and you've seen the metrics of how it's been doing and that you think you could help bring us to the next to the next level and that we should uh you know get in touch with you to make that happen um yes absolutely yeah you came to the right place i'll tell you that much you came in on the ground floor that's very smart not a lot of people do that but uh yeah so here's the deal here's here's what i'm thinking all right if you guys give me like seven hundred dollars each you know i can i can like what? help you if you guys give me seven hundred dollars like if you or just one of you just one of you gives me seven hundred dollars like right now or later tonight i can give you the tools to really kind of take this podcast and 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 make it make it something you know like uh you know what what are we thinking you know like big podcasts like uh you know uh like mark moran you guys will be like you got i can take you guys bigger than mark moran that's that's where we want to be i mean yeah so we would like give you that 700 dollars, and then you would be able to like put that into like you know help like be able to like invest that in the show and then we would like make start making like a whole bunch more money and like getting a whole bunch more listeners. Of and... course, yeah. What? Well, uh, yeah. I I think you give me that money, and I know I'm I'm seeing the look on your face. You you you're concerned. Like, what is this guy? Th- okay, here's the thing. What if you bought me lunch for like a week? Like we would have meetings. Like we would like hash well, this yeah, out like, yeah. every day for a week. Well, you know, we could have a meeting, or you could just like send me money. You know, mail me money. Mail me like ten dollars every day. Just so I could get, or, you know, hey, come on, Biden's economy, $15, you know, I'm trying to have a full lunch over here, you know, $15 a day, and I'll be out there on my feet, walking around, walking around talking, and, and I'll, I'll get, and I'll get people interested in your cartoon, you know, because I know, I know people in cartoons, and there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of interest right now in cartoons, I don't know if you knew that. You know, everybody's got some weird kid at home that they don't want to deal with, so you got to plop them in front of the cartoon. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Um, okay, so what uh, like what services do you offer for um, podcasts? Right. Yeah. Pod, it's podca- pod- yeah, podcast. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 See, I get it. I get it confused. You know, because I I think I read somewhere that podcasts are like the cartoons of uh, now. So I I understand mm-hmm. where you got confused there. Um, so basically, you know, what I can present to you, what services I can present is I'm going to walk around town and I find a lot of people, you know, who have the, what I call the glint and what the glint is, is it's a look in their eye that says, Hey, I, I'm looking for uh, lucrative projects. I, uh, and these people, they're all around town. You give me you give me some money for for lunch every day. I go out there. I go out to all the greasy spoons in town, and I find I find all these characters and and I bring them together. And we all go out, me and all these guys. And you you got to put down some money. You're, now this is the thing. You're gonna have to put down some money because I'm gonna get all these guys with the glint. We're gonna go on a vacation to an Airbnb for a weekend. Let me schmooze them. Let me sweet talk them. Let me you know we'll have a fun time. Me and them. Hopefully you get an Airbnb with a hot tub. You know, I'm, that's where the best deals are made. That's where the best deals are made. Are you like playing the podcasts in these 
restaurants or in the hot tub or how playing the podcast in the in the hot tub what are you what are you what are you trying you, you know what you let you let me handle that i'm not playing i'm not i'm not getting in audio equipment in the hot tub you know I'm, I'm not trying to kill these people come on this is why you do what you do i do what i do so <laughs> i you know i i i, I sweet talk them basically <laughs> you know i i get in their ear i get i put a little it's what i call putting a little honey in their ear you know, you put a little bit in there, just a little bit, not too much. You don't want to crank up that ear with that honey, but you put that in there, and they're like, "Hey, I like, I like the way that's, I like that the feel of that honey in my ear. Maybe uh, I'll get a little bit more. Maybe this, maybe this cartoon business is for me." And then the real glint comes out. The real glint it shoots out. You let me get that honey in there and shoot, and and they shoot that glint onto me, and that's that's when we get into uh, liquidity. Yeah, so we've been working on this cartoon for like a while now, and it's been hard to like get very much traction. Like we've we've booked a lot of great guests, and your email you said that this would be you would be able to like give us like white glove service that yeah, like the human oh, yeah. touch, yeah. And um, yes, yeah, so that's like really what we're looking for because you know so many of these these podcast networks are like you know big faceless corporations that won't you know they don't really have a human touch, and so. You know, we really like the idea that like you would want to like work closely and like have lunch with us and things course, like that. Of course, of course, yeah. It's all about the face. That's what I say. You know how much work I've had done on this. This is like this is ninety-five percent not my original face. That's how much I care about presenting my face to the real talent like yourselves. I change it constantly. Constantly, uh, constantly. I I used to have my my eyeball. I used to I used to have it lower in my mm. head, mm-hmm. and then you, you know that was that was a hardship of mine. But then I've had surgery to move it several different places around my face, and I found through years of working with clients that the eyeball is best at an even level with mm. you know with the other eyeball. So I've you know, I, I've done a lot of research in this. I've, uh, you know, and I'm still experimenting with different things to do with the lower jaw, maybe to make it bigger, maybe, you know, to because some yeah, one thing I've noticed and maybe you guys have some ideas for this, but it's like, you know, a lot of times I'm out there I'm working. I'm looking for guys with the glint and, you know, I have a big turkey submarine sandwich and there's a guy with a glint running out the door. I got to run after him. I want to finish my sandwich. I want one of those jaws that opens wider i can eat the submarine sandwich one gulp so hey hey here's an idea what if we forget the cartoon or what what have you we work together on a new jaw you know i feel like the market for this right now i'm i'm feeling it, it feels red hot I, and i know these things so like a snake yeah yeah like a snake you know yeah sure Jason, let's let's like I, stay I'm professional. Just, I'm confused. Like, um, no, but I just like because I'm I'm like really into the idea of of working with you. Um, the the thing that I'm a little concerned about is, uh, you know, with some of the other networks that we that we were looking into, really it would be kind of you know a situation where they would pay us, uh, mm. and they would you know put ads on our podcast and it would generate revenue and they would make some money off it and we would make some money off it and they would help provide yeah, money to yeah, us but you don't want to deal with all that i'm just gonna tell you right now this is where we're at as an industry all right 
They put ads on your on your podcast. You don't know what they're saying. You give up your thing to them. You know they'll put all sorts of stuff in there. They'll put in Satan worshippers. You know they'll put it. I've, if I've seen it once, I've seen it a million times. What other podcasts do you have in the network? Oh yeah, what other ones? I got so many. I gotta I gotta look them up on my phone. There's just so many. What are the uh, popular pod? Oh, I mean, uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, uh, Serial. Oh, oh, wow. Serial, wow. I worked on that one. Uh, Joe Rogan. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. You said it was 700? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what what are we working with here? What are you guys, what what would you guys, would, would lunch every day work or would... You know, just kind of uh, uh, a ride to to the halfway home. I don't live there, but I just I, I have business there later. So how much time? I know I know you said in your email that you know the time was of the essence and that you're a busy man and all of that. So it's just, you know how quickly would we need to like gather the seven hundred dollars, uh, you know, to make this happen? Well, how much money do you guys have on you right now? Um. Uh, I think uh, like sixty bucks. Or I something. can have like a twenty. Okay, if I I'll, uh, so that's that's eighty if I'm correct. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you know what? Why don't we just call it that? Uh, for today. Like for the just just for the meeting, or like hey, are you uh, gonna do some some searching after? Yeah, this? yeah, that's a good idea for the meeting, and then I'll keep you guys in mind, and you know when you guys are like really ready to take on the world, you can find old Dino. Um, okay, Jason, give him give him the cash. Okay. All right, great. Wow, I you know what I'm seeing a lot of a lot of future for you guys, and uh, this was this was fantastic. So maybe we'll we'll talk next week or. Yeah, you know I I'd love to. Yeah, we could do another another meeting. Uh, you know I'll be around town. Um. Okay. I guess we'll just we'll just reach out. Welcome back. So, Max, let's get into it. We're covering a brush with the elbow of greatness. So, the episode begins with the classic uh, applesauce intro from Hank Kingsley to open the show. On the late night talk show that night was uh, B.B. Newworth, mm. Penny Marshall, and Garth Brooks. Big show. So, Max, I'm going to give you my usual rundown here. B.B. Newworth, famous for playing Lilith. In Cheers, mm-hmm. uh, Frazier's wife. Um, so that's most likely what she was promoting. But I also want to note, it's possible she was promoting a special little episode of Wings. Did you know this? The crossover? Yeah, there was a crossover where Frazier and Lilith go to Nantucket and appear in a Wings episode. Plus, one other nugget for the super fans out there. She was in the Oliver Stone made-for-TV movie Wild Palms on ABC. This might sound familiar because in season one, episode two, Dana Delaney was on The Larry Sanders Show promoting that explicitly. Mm. Mm. Penny Marshall had just come out with A League of Their Own in 1992. Wow. Um, Now, Garth Brooks, uh, he came out with his fourth album, The Chase, in 1992, plus his first Christmas album, Beyond the Season. Mm. Anyway, this is a very good lineup for the show. I think 
this this is probably a very good episode in the Larry Sanders show canon, but we wish see, we could have seen that. Yeah. We see none of these guests, which I think is fun. Um, all right. Uh, Larry comes out for his monologue. It's very traditional. He has, there's a little bit of a repartee. Do you have any thoughts on the monologue? It's very short. I don't think there's really much to discuss personally. Yeah, he tells pretty lifeless jokes. There's a little bit of banter with Hank. Um, he doesn't say no flipping. He says, do not flip around. So he has the the catchphrase has yet to coalesce. You're still on this. I'm still on it. I'll never stop. All right. So after this very short monologue, we then go to our usual post-show debrief. Larry and Artie, you know, walking backstage and then through the halls. It's a fun uh, visual gag where Larry's wearing a, a big cowboy hat and then Hank comes running up also wearing a big cowboy hat. They look pretty ridiculous. Um, Larry asks Artie the question, does this hat make my ass look fat? So another callback to his obsession with um, his weight. It's pretty unhealthy at this point. Um, and Larry asks Artie why people even like Garth Brooks, which I think is an open question. So when Hank comes over and talks to Artie and Larry, he's try- he is in the midst of trying to become the spokesperson for Chicken in a Minute. And he actually invited the head of Chicken in a Minute, whose name is Ben Smalley, to the show and wants to ask Larry if he can mention the product on the air as a way of impressing the president of the company, which just, I think, continues to show the uh, pathetic nature of Hank uh, really appropriately. But Larry, as always, tries to brush it off, even with uh, Ben Smalley present. So then we move to Larry's house in the living room where Larry and Jeannie are together. And they see a news story on TV about Larry himself. And the report is about how a woman named Carol Biederman is alleging that Larry pushed her into a magazine rack at a Quinn's market in Larchmont Village. And to add insult to injury, Carol Biederman says that he looks thin on TV, but in real life, he's got a bit of a gut. So I'm sure for Larry, that hurts just as much as the accusation that he would do something violent to this woman but now we first get uh, a sense of larry as a media figure outside of the world of the larry sanders show he's talked about on the news on the celebrity news so we've heard sort of secondhand him referred to in some of the trade papers like variety um we've seen you know him and Artie and hank looking at variety but you're right that this is the first time it's sort of spilled over into TV and into sort of, uh, I guess, more of a hubbub. Right, exactly. This is this is a moment where we see something that definitely could happen to any celebrity and happens if you watch enough Entertainment Tonight, you'll see this same sort of thing happen all the time. And clearly this uh, scandal here is taking a little bit of inspiration from uh, famously Johnny Carson's DUI, um, which really did a lot to kind of, at the time, shatter the image of Johnny Carson as being this like great American TV host. This and the other news story that they talk about in the next scene, which is when Artie and Larry are talking about all this, you know, controversy, and they make a reference to the... The, they refer to Carol Biederman uh, by reference to the woman who was stalking David Letterman, which was also a, a big uh, celebrity tabloid story 
that was going on at the same time. So this episode is clearly drawing on those two talk show stories together. The idea of the obsessed fan and the bad behavior of the seemingly nice late night talk show host. Um, one thing to note, because this will come up multiple times, is that uh, Larry was buying a large bottle of Excedrin. This is part of his, to use a, a not great term, his like pill habit mm-hmm. throughout the series. He's obviously in a lot of pain of various sorts, and he self-medicates to try to manage that. Um, he had one of his famous tunnel vision headaches, uh, and so that's why he claims he didn't see her and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but he was also buying at Quinn's Market in Larchmont Village a jar of artichoke hearts. Are uh, artichoke hearts, were they like a, a trend food of the 90s? Oh, that's an interesting question. You Maybe. Know, with, with sun-dried tomatoes and right. things like that. Right. Maybe. Artie has a really nice small line in here, a good joke, uh, referring to artichoke hearts. They really add zing. He's not wrong. Yeah. Put them in a salad. This scene ends with Artie giving or planning to give orders to the staff about how they should talk to reporters, whether they should talk to reporters. So Artie's, you know, as the producer, as Larry's fixer in a way, taking control of the situation, trying to figure out the best way to work through it. Uh, We're led to believe here there are reporters outside. Uh, So then a great cut to Jerry and Phil talking to reporters in the hallway and uh, doing a bit course jerry and phil can't take this seriously they joke about um physical abuse larry uh i think beating someone halfway to death something like that next we go to back to larry's office uh some time has passed i think it's the next day and Artie brings in the security camera footage from quinn's market in largemont village which mary hart of entertainment tonight leaked to him after entertainment tonight Got the footage. What are your thoughts about this security camera footage? The first joke Larry makes when Artie says he has the footage is a joke that I think is actually pretty telling about what the state of television is. Because he says that there's not going to be anything on the security camera footage and that just live feeds of security cameras is eventually going to be a cable channel soon. So it's like even in his moment where he's um, thinking about his own personal you know, mistakes that he's made. He's also still thinking about the competition from cable and, you know, how, you know, boring this is and like our, you know, the cultural obsession with, you know, this sort of, this sort of story. But also the expansion of cable. So over the eighties, but especially in the nineties, you have a lot of uh, channels being created coming out of the woodwork, often focusing on very small niche markets or topics um, so, you know, the early days of Court TV or Comedy Central or its predecessor, the name of which I'm blanking on right now. Um, so another sort of allusion to the way the culture is shifting through the 80s, but really accelerating in the 90s to be much more um, TV centric, 24 hours, everything's available. You can watch basically anything you want. Um, or an interesting part of the security footage that I enjoyed was that Larry truly does look like a jerk. Like, yeah, he Gary Shandling sort of acts it in a way that you think maybe he has a headache in tunnel vision, but he also like still has his sunglasses on in a supermarket. He's very impatient. He's sort of like upset that he has to stand there for more than 10 seconds. Um, and when he brushes 
Carol Biederman. Um, he obviously touches her, but doesn't seem to turn back to notice that he touches her. And she falls, presumably making a loud noise, and he also doesn't look back at all. He's just straight ahead checking out with his sunglasses on. So um, he does truly look like a jerk, and Larry internalizes this immediately, that from a third-person perspective, from the vantage point of a security camera, um, he looks really bad, and it's going to be a big problem. But the one thing I would say about this scene that I think is makes it less strong, how this scene is so similar to what happens in The Flirt, where it's they are analyzing a piece of videotape really like intricately to see what's going on, which is itself a commentary on things like the Rodney King video and, you know, the way cable news was just anal would like just constantly re-air and reanalyze this sort of like grainy security footage. And this scene just because they've already done it before, they can't make the same joke about the Rodney King tape or, you know, the Zapruder film or something like that. So, you know, you end up it ends up being just like a, a little one note, I think. But formally, they do similar things to The Flirt, where um, I believe both are directed by Ken Quapis. They show it in one setting. The camera comes to the TV. And then when it, we leave the TV, we're in a different setting. So in this episode, we go from uh, Larry and Jeannie's living room onto the TV and then back out to Larry's office. I believe we do the same in The Flirt. Next enters... Norman Litke, Larry's publicist. This is our first time getting to know Norman Litke. He's played by David Paymer, who's one of my favorite character actors. I love David Paymer. Um, looking a little bit at his CV, I was reminded he's in Airplane 2. So that's a callback uh, to Season 1, Episode 1 for our listeners, mm -hmm. where Robert Hayes makes a joke about Airplane 2. He's in City Slickers 1 and 2 with Billy Crystal, and he's in Mr. Saturday Night, which Billy Crystal came on The Larry Sanders Show to promote in Season 1, Episode 9. Uh, David Paymer's also in Get Shorty. He has a great role in Ocean's 13. I don't know if you remember that, uh, but he's a hotel reviewer. Um, and I highly recommend checking out his IMDb or Wikipedia. He's in all sorts of things. You've definitely seen him in in multiple movies or TV shows. He's in everything. He says that the network is upset because the footage is so bad, uh, but there's no such thing as negative publicity. This is an opportunity. Uh, he says twice that he's wetting himself because he's so excited. Roseanne's national anthem debacle, uh, which in which she messed up the singing of the national anthem at a baseball game, um, caused her ratings to go up. Uh, CNN is airing Larry's tape pushing Carol Biederman, which is going to also push his ratings up. So he should be excited about this moment, this opportunity. The spotlight is on him. And I love this because David Pamer plays it seriously and jokingly and like the total scumbag that a publicist would be in this situation. Yeah. I mean, it's a totally, this is a clear, cynical moment on the show. I think David Pamer as a Norman Litke might be the best part of this episode. It's a controversial thing to say. Um, I do want to note two little references here. So Larry makes a joke about looting in Los Angeles. Again, this is in the wake of um, the Rodney King 
uh, verdict and all of the riots that happened afterwards. Um, and there's a reference, I believe it comes from Norman Litke, about the Dennis Miller show. So Dennis Miller, who was, I believe, a friend of Gary Shandling yeah. in, in real life um, and wrote for him or ghost wrote, it, ghost wrote for him uh, for a short period. Dennis Miller had a late night talk show on syndication in 1992. So this is the era of Arsenio. Um, this is the era when they think syndication can work, but it lasted only six months. It was viewed as a generally a failure. Um, but a fun tidbit is that the production company Tribune uh, that um, created and distributed the show initially wanted Gary Shandling. This was one of his late night talk show opportunities, which he turned down. And instead, uh, Brillstein Gray suggested to Tribune that they try Dennis Miller. Next, there's a great montage of news clips, uh, reports from cable news. We have Suzanne Vafiadis from E, Bella Shaw from CNN. Um, one anchor who doesn't get a name, but I thought did the best of, of any of them. She discusses uh, the Sanders Shuffle, a new dance created by students mm-hmm. at the University of Illinois. Um, Eduardo Quezada from Univision. Uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a funny montage. We don't see many montages in uh, the Larry Sanders show. I enjoyed it. I think there's a just a split second in this montage, which really shows how simplified the story is. Um, but in a, in a different way, it's that Larry is such a jerk that he didn't even realize this. Um, so there, there's a moment when they're showing the security camera footage, and I think we only see it when we see Bella Shaw on CNN throwing to that footage, where they let it linger for just like a second longer. And you see Larry, after knocking this woman over into a stand of magazines, either just immediately go to the cashier and sort of put his items forward, that's the sort of body language I'm reading, or mugging to the security camera. It's sort of on the borderline of what he's doing. In part, he's wearing sunglasses, so we don't know where he's looking. But he has sort of has his arms up and out a little bit, either to place things on the counter or to shrug as he's looking at a camera. Um, so this is a, a moment where it's they're trying to play that Larry is such a terrible person that he would just do this and be not just reckless about it, but like knowingly reckless and unapologetic. Of course, they get a soundbite from some other... Uh, patron who says that Arsenio would never do something like this. And so it makes sense that in the next scene, we have Beverly coming in to Larry's office and Larry is laying on the couch, despondent, you know, so upset that he says to her, what's it like not being famous? Which is, again, I think a little on the nose for this episode. Speaking but still... of on the nose, uh, Larry also explicitly mentions Johnny Carson's uh, DUI and the way that sort of changed the perception of, of Johnny. And he, he's now bringing up again, moving away to Montana, something he's threatened to do throughout the season. And he's just going back and forth on whether he should take another Excedrin. Switching things up, we go to the B plot, the B plot and uh, I should say Beak plot. Because uh, it is chicken. As I mentioned earlier, I think this is a pretty weak B-plot. But um, Hank is scheming here. He's trying to imply to the Chicken a Minute executive, Smalley, um, that he actually eats the food. So 
He has this discussion with Darlene, basically forcing her to go out and not purchase chicken in a minute, but just somehow get the wrappers so that they can be strewn about to then signal to Smalley that he actually enjoys the product. Um, Again, I think it's a very weak B-plot. I don't even want to spend time on it, but there is a great line here from Hank to Darlene. You've got your dignity, babe. Yeah, he's he is really uh, trying to cover up for himself the fact that he is actually asking her to do this degrading thing. Next, we are outside Larry's office. Um, Larry has been alone in his office for, I think they say, three hours, and he turned down an Excedrin. Artie then tries to get him out. He tries to tempt him, um, talking about Fred Savage and the show coming up and how much fun he'll have. Uh, We then see an attempt from Jerry and Phil. Uh, They do a bit about Tony Danza. So uh, Jerry, played by Jeremy Piven, does an impression of Tony Danza about bad luck kitty, this new cat he's adopted. I don't, it's very odd. Um, I don't see how they could think that would make him want to open the door. (laughs) And then we have, at the same time, back to the B plot, we have hank showing around ben smalley from chicken in a minute and you know he introduces him to darlene they do the whole show about all the rappers that are on the desk so darlene did end up getting some rappers and um he keeps calling him mr smalley but then he mr smalley says oh you can just call me ben to which hank replies i had a parent named ben which i think is perfectly delivered that's one of the great lines of this episode also smalley has a great reaction to that i don't know if you picked up on it but the actor sort of looks at him it's a mix of like befuddlement and like restraining a chuckle because it's just such a ridiculous thing to say um hank is being really desperate here not just with the rappers not just with calling him mr smalley but hank is leading smalley out of his office they've already had a meeting about whether to do chicken in a minute but he still feels the need to show off to him even after they've probably like shaken hands, talked about details. He's still so desperate to seal the job. To really seal the deal, he brings him over to Larry's office where Larry is locked himself in and doesn't want to talk to anyone. So at the worst possible moment, Hank tries to show off that he can have access to Larry and Larry tells him to fuck off. And so Hank and Ben Smalley leave and uh, Hank tries to pretend as if nothing happened. We then cut to another attempt to get Larry out of the office. Jeannie has arrived, driven across town um, to try to, to coax him out. Um, Seems like they still have a good relationship if you're watching these episodes in the order they were aired. True. That's confusing. Um, but she gets him instantly by threatening him. She's not trying to play nice. It's, I'll tell everyone what the nickname for your penis is. Uh, one funny note here is that Jerry, the writer, played by Jeremy Piven, while everyone else is you know politely clapping mm-hmm. because Jeannie was able to do it, Jerry is snapping. <laughs> it's a funny, funny choice uh, by Jeremy Piven. Um, so now we're inside Larry's office. Jeannie is talking. They're pretty relaxed on the couch, um, talking about what he should do with the Carol Biederman situation, the brush. Um, Larry mentions again moving to Montana. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, but Norman, Norman and Artie interrupt. They bust through the door, and Larry admits he's made his decision. He's going to apologize to Carol Biederman. 
Norman ups the stakes and he says, this is your moment. You should apologize on air in person for the whole world to see. And he makes a great joke here, which is nice foreshadowing uh, that the only way they would get better ratings is for Larry to marry Hank on the air. We'll of course come to see Hank's on air nuptials in a later season. Uh, Artie's fully on board. So it sounds like it's going to happen next. We are in the show within the show. Larry's just come back from commercial break and uh, he gives a very earnest introduction to his next guest, Carol Biederman. Um, she looks the. I didn't have a chance to look up the actor who plays Carol Biederman, but she she does a really great job in this segment. She's uncomfortable. She's also sort of camera shy. Um, she's generally pretty reserved. It's very clear she doesn't really want to be there, but somehow was you know felt obligated to be there. She wants things from Larry, but is not expressing them exactly. Um, and he's just trying to play it like usual, you know, facade. He's smiling, he's chuckling, even as he's trying to be serious with an apology. Um, and she's much more human in this situation, uh, still upset at him and not feeling like she got a great apology. Um, Larry gives his formal apology. It's basically just, I'm sorry, I apologize. And he, I wrote down that Larry apologizes, but does not seem apologetic. I mean, there's this whole element of of this about how obvious it is. Obviously, it, this moment is for the show. The um, you know, he's got this big fake smile on his face. He gives her a refrigerator freezer as a token of his apology. It's you know, it's obviously you know, with a spokes model coming out, it looks like the Price is Right. So it's clearly. Um, She's, he is trying to pressure her based on the fact that there is an audience watching who wants her to say that she's sorry. And she feels that. Her initial reaction is she won't accept it until she talks to her attorney. Very smartly, she the thinks correct, it could be yeah. construed as settlement for damages. So she's on it. I kind of like Carol Biederman in this moment. Um, Hank and Larry do something which I think is extremely embarrassing to do on TV they basically start begging her like it's they're not on their hands and knees but they're like this is a great fridge you don't understand this is our apology this is larry's you know token to say that you know he's really sorry he wishes that you know things would be different blah 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 um and they sort of force her hand on television so that she eventually accepts the fridge and you know by proxy accepts his apology um, I'm going to say this scene I found the most, the least compelling because, again, it feels like this is another example of the show playing on the same theme again in that we have already had the episode. I know it was, this episode was produced before but aired after the the talk show episode in which we have Larry pulling a very similar stunt on Jeannie in order to get on her good side by bringing her on the air. So I just, uh, you know, I, it's perhaps unfair because this episode was written and produced before to compare it to this other episode. But I would say that it's, it's playing on very similar dynamics about like can being on stage, uh, heal things. Obviously that episode attempts to have a more humane, positive, uh, feeling about that. Whereas this one is a lot more cynical but it just, uh, it falls a little bit flat to me, just like 
Carol Biederman does when Larry accidentally uh, pushes her down on when he's going to shake her hand. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you saying accidentally pushes her down? I watched the footage. I watched it today. What do you mean accidentally pushed her down? I'm just saying that she fell down, that she falls down the steps. I'm not blaming Larry. I'm just saying it's what happened. I recommend to our listeners that they go back and rewatch those last five, ten seconds before we cut to credits. Because what I see Mm -hmm. is Larry shaking the hand of his guest, as he Mm -hmm. does often, going in for a little chit-chat. He points to the fridge. She sort of steps to look while still holding his hand, misses the step that's in front of her, and just falls down. I think... No fault to Larry. She might have rights to sue the production company because, you know, she's fallen on their property. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe if I'm a homeowner and someone falls on my front step, maybe they have a right to sue me. I don't know. Uh, But Larry, as an individual, I think holds no responsibility. But you said that he accidentally pushed her. What's your agenda? I'm sorry. I misspoke about Larry pushing Carol Biederman. I know that he didn't push her. The video evidence is very clear. I just misspoke. I read my notes too quickly, and I, I, I summarized them incorrectly. So I apologize to all of our listeners. The lesson we've learned today is when you do a recap for a watch-along podcast, you always have to watch the episode within, I don't know, let's say 72 hours of recording it. So this is the end of the episode. They get, you know, Hank and Larry look down at her as she's fallen down and we get the freeze frame and it's, uh oh, we've done it again. So, Max, we are wrapping up the season here. Um, Since we have a little bit of time in this episode, I wanted to get your thoughts. How'd you like season one? It's a little bit more traditional. And I also a little bit more of a sitcom-y type feel than you get sometimes in the later seasons um, where it's sometimes a lot darker or a lot more uh, broad. And you also, I think, get in this season a lot more of something that we've talked about throughout our podcast this season is the question of whether things are intentionally funny or unintentionally funny. And so I have spoken to many people who, I, when I say, give this a try, and some of the people who have listened to this podcast have said the same thing, that I don't understand like the jokes. And I think some of that is because the jokes are on purpose supposed to be bad. And I think that is a thing that if you don't come into it with the mindset of there is a potential that some of these jokes are not supposed to be funny and that the purpose of it is to be not funny, then you uh, miss a lot of what's, uh, what is actually like really interesting about this season so far. I really like this season, I think, because of uh, the general themes of the season. So what we see in multiple episodes broadly across season one are sort of the distinction between your work life and your personal life and how it can be messy when they interact or one bleeds over into the other and it causes problems for you. Mm -hmm. Um, How show business can sort of empty you. Like it can make you sort of a a shell of yourself because you're always performing. God, I know what that's like. Uh, But also 
because it's such a terrible industry that people have to be sort of like ruthless and throw their friends under the bus and, you know, uh, disrespect mentors and things like that. Uh, I also really like this season just because the, uh, the lineup of guests I think is very fun. Um, it's a good array of some of sort of like older folks who were maybe stars in the sixties or seventies, but were definitely, you know, fixtures on Johnny Carson or other, you know, late night appearances. Um, and a lot of the younger folks like Spade and Carvey, I think are fun, uh, fun guess. So, uh, let's get to the part of the episode where we rename the episode. Uh, Max, you tell me your title isn't very funny. So why don't you go first? Um, I guess I would call the episode problematic fave. And my rationale is that this episode shows us that Larry really is a problematic fave. He does bad things. He's a jerk publicly he's a bad guy it's in the same way that we see people like you know david letterman with his scandals and all of that but we you know we also really like his comedy he's a problematic fave and for this universe larry sanders host of the larry sanders show would be one of those problematic faves so it doesn't really fit in as slang from now to be used in an episode from 1992 but i don't care about continuity max like every week, I have multiple titles in mind. In no particular order. Okay. Get some help. Negative publicity. I'm practically wetting myself over that title. Tunnel vision. And my favorite, this one's got a little zest, as we learned from Artie. Artichoke carts. I just want to say all my title may have been, you know, a little corny. All of those are horrible titles. I think Artichoke Hearts is the best one. That's why I ended with it. Think about it. Just think about it for a second. It might have been the best one, but that doesn't mean it still (laughs) wasn't terrible. So that's all the time we have for this episode and also for this season of The Larry Sanders Show. We'd like to thank Mr. Peter Tolan again for joining us for the second straight week. And as always, thanks to Wendy Eisenberg for the theme music and Jody Bozine for our show artwork. You can find us on all social media with the handle at Larry Sanders Pod. This week, Jason and I would like to shout out another comedian that we're a fan of. This time, Nick Nanny. Nick can be found on Twitter and Instagram at, at Nick Nanny. And he has a live stand-up special taping at Union Hall in Brooklyn on December 8th. So we really recommend getting tickets for that. And then, you know what? Watch it again once the special comes out. So that's all for this week, and stay tuned for more new episodes of It's the Larry Sanders Show's show. Goodbye. Goodbye.